Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Horror, Wine, and Crime with KK and Lo. Lo, how goes it? It goes. <laughs> yeah, it goes. It's, uh, it's been a pretty good day today. Uh, sun was out for a little bit. I didn't have to work. I went to the gym. I blew out my hair right before I put these heavy-ass headphones on. So... Uh, <laughs> We're uh, we're doing pretty well today. Nice, fun, Although, productive day. Yes, a um, little bit of a bump. I get an email at ten oh six saying that there was a potential threat at the kids' high school today, Oxford of all places. Um, apparently, someone called in a bomb threat. Um, they kept the kids in school on lockdown while they searched all the cars and searched the premises outside. Then they released them at 11 o'clock and they think it was from out of the country though. So it might've been just like a hack or a prank or I don't know. So I'm guessing they're going back tomorrow. I haven't heard anything else, but. That's crazy. And that's so scary, especially for those kids at that school, you know, I think it's scary for any kids at all the schools. Yeah. But it's like, especially with what happened there, you know, I'm sure. Well, I think that's why they got to go home early because it was a trigger and some of the kids might have started to re-feel like past emotions. Um, So they called it early to let everybody go home. Good. I'm glad that they did because, yeah, I'm sure that that hit a a lot, if not most of the kids there because, and like, honestly, terrible of whoever did that. I don't know. Which I don't know why, like out of the country though, that seems kind of weird to me but right like why did they just choose that school randomly to just like randomly say that makes no sense maybe the ais are getting out of control probably gosh if not if not now one day they will be i swear scary stuff well i'm glad everything turned out to be okay and they were able to like release the kids and everything turned out to be you know not actually threatening so yeah i just had to my day off at home with no kids. I'm like, seriously? You're like, dang it. <laughs> of all days. <laughs> so did you have to like go pick them up then? And No, the buses took them home. Oh, okay. Well, that's good at least. But still, yeah. Kind of interrupting your day off. Yeah, Charlotte was like, my stomach hurts. Can you bring me something? I was like, they're not even letting anyone in the parking lot, even if I wanted to. <laughs> Might I supposed to stay like, time out, people, time out. My daughter has a bellyache. I just got to run this in real quick. Time out. <laughs> Forget all the bomb threat stuff. Like, we got to bring in this granola bar right now. <laughs> <sighs> but yeah. Today's story, Lo actually recommended uh, for me to do. It plays off of, if you guys haven't listened the past two weeks, to the part one and part two series of The Catcher in the Rye coincidence or conspiracy that we had going on. This kind of plays off this too, and it like ties into that as well. So it just doesn't stop. It really doesn't. I'm like, I wonder how many more like cases like this there are because it's just too weird like and it's not like little stuff like all the all these stories are like huge things that happened it's like the energizer bunny it keeps going and going and going 
right? Like, I swear, I feel like digging into it, I'm sure there's like at least a few more, maybe not as crazy or as popular stories, but like this book did something to people, I feel. <laughs> Which so far is so good on my end. So. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. I don't know. Maybe like you have to already start off being a little bit crazy. You know what I mean? And then it yeah. like just fully like takes you out. But well, I mean, I am kind of a little, uh, uh. hopefully not as bad, you know, as these, these people the past few weeks no. that we've heard about. <laughs> I think you're a little bit better than them. <laughs> I ain't trying to hurt anybody. No, not at all. But yeah, so kind of going off of those past two weeks, uh, it brings us to today's story, which is about Rebecca Schaefer. So Rebecca Lucille Schaefer, she was an American actress and model. She began her career as a teen model before she kind of moved her way into acting. So in 1986, she landed the role of Patricia or Patty Russell in the CBS comedy, My Sister Sam. The series was canceled two years later in 88. And after that, she appeared in several films, including black comedy scenes from the class struggle in Beverly Hills. So kind of a little background on Rebecca. She was born November 6, 1967 in Eugene, Oregon. Um, she was an only child. Her parents were Dana Wilner, who was a writer and instructor who taught at Willamette University and Portland Community College. And then her dad was Dr. Benson. He was a child psychologist. So Rebecca was raised in Portland, where she attended Lincoln High School. She initially aspired to become a rabbi, interestingly enough, but she kind of took a major turn there from, I feel like that's kind of like a huge jump from like wanting to be a rabbi to then begin modeling. Um, so yeah, during her ju junior year of high school, she started taking on some modeling gigs. She appeared in department store catalogs and TV commercials, and she just got some extra roles in television film as well. So in 1984, when she was 16, she worked a summer in New York City with elite model management. And with her parents' permission, she actually stayed in the city by herself to pursue modeling. So while she was working in New York, Rebecca attended professional children's school. She also had a short-term role on the daytime soap opera, Guiding Light. Later in 1984, Rebecca landed the role of Annie Barnes on ABC's One Life to Live for a stint that lasted about six months. Um, and then during that time, she attempted to further her modeling prospects. She was about 5'7", um, and apparently she was considered too short for high fashion modeling, and she struggled to find work in that area. So she did a lot of, like, you know, magazines and stuff like that. But as far as, like, runway, nobody really hired her just because she didn't have, like, the super height that they were looking for. 
The long legs. Right. I definitely feel her on that because I don't have that either. <laughs> so in 1985, the following year, she moved to Japan in hopes of finding more modeling jobs. Which is interesting when I read that because I'm like, Japan, I'm like, is there just like a ton of modeling jobs in Japan? Like, why did she choose Japan? Is it because they're a little bit shorter? So she thought like she had a better chance. I don't really know. Um, but even after she moved there, she still found a lot of issues. Like it was very difficult to book any jobs because of her height and weight. You know, they want like super tall, super, super skinny, especially back then. Victoria's Secret. They want wings. Yeah. Yep. Or to be able to give you wings, I should say. Right. But stay tuned to next week. We'll tell you Victoria's Secret. <laughs> that is a big one. <laughs> oh, wait. Everybody knows he's a guy from Ohio. <laughs> big bummer there, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Rebecca returned to New York after kind of not really finding any success in Japan. And she decided to kind of focus on her acting career. She's like, you know, modeling's not really working out for me. So let me gear my uh, focus more on acting. So the next year in 86, she actually won a small role in Woody Allen's comedy Radio Days, but her character sadly was edited out except for one brief scene. That would be such a bummer. I know that happens to a lot of people. They like think they get this like role in this big movie and then they just like get it edited out. That would be they're sitting there with all their friends and family and parents <laughs> waiting for their big moment. And then they're like, oh, that's devastating, though. So, so disappointing. But at least she got one scene that kept in there. Um, but yeah, she continued modeling and she also worked as a waitress while she was just auditioning for more roles. She did appear on the cover of Seventeen magazine, which is like a huge deal. Um, it caught the attention of TV producers her, who were casting for the comedy My Sister Sam, um, who it also starred Pam Daubert. And Rebecca, she ultimately won the role of Patty or Patricia Russell. And she played a teenager who moves from Oregon to San Francisco to live with her 29-year-old sister, Samantha. Um, after the death of both of their parents. I never saw the show. I don't know if you have, Lo, but... Um... Um, I heard of it. I was really young still when this came out. Right. It came out, you said, 86? Um, No, I believe it came out after that. I think that's when she was discovered for it. Okay, so probably like 87, 88. Um, yeah. So I was like seven, eight years old. So I, but I don't like I said. I rem the name sounds very familiar, um, but I don't remember actually like continuously watching it. I was too busy watching like Who's the Boss and Growing Pains and Nano Two and O is going to be starting here soon. So, right, yeah, you were probably too young for whatever this this one was. Um, but she definitely found success doing it. Um. She lived with her co-star, Pam Dauber, during her work on the series, and it was initially a hit. It ranked in the top 25, 
but it did end up getting canceled about halfway through its second season in um, April of 88 due to falling ratings. So I think the first season was a hit, but then people kind of didn't really care once the second season came, which I've been there with shows. Like I'll love the first season and then I'm kind of over it by the second season. Yeah. Um, and she also, I know. Yeah. Especially for like, like in her situation, it took her years to get a role this big and then it gets canceled in the second season. Um, she also served as a spokesperson for the children's charity Thursday's Child. So getting into the whole crime situation that happened with Rebecca, she was preparing for the audition of a lifetime when she was shot to death at the age of 21 by a young man who had been stalking her before, you know, the term stalking was really officially a huge thing and before stalking was even, like, considered a crime. So he was, like, one of the OG stalkers. <laughs> now, Rebecca, she thought it was, like, sweet that a fan was sending her stuffed animals and, like, other little gifts at the studio. Um, and she was getting these on her lot where the sitcom My Sister Sam was filmed. And she probably just thinks, like, oh, it's this fan who really loves me. Like, this is so nice. They're sending me gifts. But little did she know this was, like, much more of a scary situation than that. So the CBS show um, that she played on was definitely her big break. And she quickly became a favorite of the 17 reading set. Not like I said, it ended after two seasons in 88, but thankfully for her, after that, the work kept coming, so it wasn't like she was struggling after the show ended. Um, she co-starred in the racy, big-screen farce scenes from The Class Struggle in Beverly Hills, which came out in theaters in 1989. I don't and, know at all. Yeah, I have never heard of that either. Um, she also did the TV movie Voyage of Terror, the Archil Loro affair. I don't know if you heard about that. It was, I guess, about the real life 1985 hacking of a cruise liner. Hmm. Um, and then she also was in another movie, The End of Innocence, where she played a younger version of Diane Cannon's character who was the director of that movie okay yeah. so you know that one mm. oh i thought you were saying it. yeah so the work just like kept coming for her thankfully so i think my sister sam kind of like elevated her to just get role after role for that she was even said to be in the running for the lead of a woman a woman of the movie Pretty Woman, which is obviously it went to Julia Roberts, but she was one of the girls they were considering for that. I'm sorry she didn't make it, but I can't picture anybody else but Julia Roberts doing it. 
Yeah, they definitely made the right decision on that one. I mean, I don't know Rebecca Schaefer's like acting work or abilities, but I think Julie Roberts just like was perfect for that. And I think like I read somewhere a long time ago, like Michelle Pfeiffer was in the lead, uh, run for it. Oh, um, I could see that. And I think it was supposed to be Michelle Pfeiffer and they wanted Al Pacino and they were going to call it 300. Um, and I love Michelle Pfeiffer. I think she is adorable. I yeah. love her in Witches of Eastwick. I love her in What Lies Beneath, like all things. However, I just feel like Julia Roberts just made that role. Richard Gere and Julia Roberts. I can't picture it being a, maybe it's because I've seen it that way, but I don't know. Yeah, I feel like I'm biased because it's one of my favorite movies, but whatever. <laughs> and it's just so it's like one that's really iconic that like I feel like everybody has seen. So if it wasn't her in that movie, it probably just wouldn't have been the same. It wouldn't have hit the same, I don't think. It would have been a big mistake. Big, huge. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> So, on the morning of July 18th, 1989, 21-year-old Rebecca, she was waiting for a delivery that, you know, if it all went well, would have changed her life. She was scheduled to audition later that day for the then very coveted role of Michael Corlone's daughter, Mary, in The Godfather Part 3. Um, and she was auditioning in front of Francis Ford Coppola. Did I say that right? Yes, you did. Okay. And she was expecting the script to be dropped off at her West Hollywood apartment any minute. So she was pumped. Obviously, this is like a huge opportunity to possibly get a role in The Godfather. So she stands before him. On the day of his daughter's wedding, asking for this favor. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> Come in, my daughter. Come in. <laughs> Man, well, they should have casted you. Ooh, especially on the days when I was smoking back in the day. Ooh, mom didn't <laughs> hear that. Plug your ears, mom. I don't do it no more. I quit. It's been clean for a very long time. <laughs> But you brought you had the scratchy, scratchy voice going on. Oh God, no! I think it wasn't not that far. But I'm saying <laughs> it probably could have helped, you know. Right? Yeah. So when the bank the bell rang at 10:15 a.m., Rebecca went to answer the door, and ended up being fatally shot by 19 year old Robert John Bardo. Now, Robert had been obsessed with her for three years and had paid a private investigator $300 to figure out where she lived. So he was like super serious, obsessed stalker, like paying somebody just to like get her address. The PI got her address from DMV records and then Bardo got his older brother Edward to buy him a gun which his own attempt was unsuccessful after he told the gun store owner about his history of mental health. So, like, that got him out of the running. Um, which is kind of weird on his part. Like, if you actually want a gun, like, why would you tell the guy that's selling it to you about your mental illness? But 
it's just me. Um, but yeah, so his brother got one for him. And his brother Edward, he told Robert that he could only use the gun when they were together for target shooting. And he bought a .357 Magnum. So Edward, like, didn't know Robert's plans at all. He just thought that, like, Robert wanted a gun for, like, shooting targets or whatever. And the only thing that Rebecca said after he shot her, according to what Bardo later told a psychiatrist in a jailhouse interview, was, why? Why? Which is so sad. Because I'm sure she, like, was just so confused. She's so excited. The doorbell rings. She thinks she's getting this huge script that she has the opportunity to audition for. And then she just gets shot. This story reminds me a lot of the, um, was it Sheila? Shelly? Shelly. She was an actress and waitress. Oh, yeah. You yeah, did yeah, it. Yeah. It was your I story. <laughs> was it Shelly or Michelle? I think it was Shelly. She was ended up being um, in her apartment. They killed her and then hung her in her shower. Yes, and they tried to make it look like a suicide. Yes. Yeah, definitely similar vibes to this one. Or the older sister from Poltergeist. She was stalked by her ex-boyfriend. So sad. So, Robert Bardo, he was a freshman in high school when he first saw Rebecca in a commercial for My Sister Sam in the summer of 1986. Like, once he saw her, it, like, hit him. He felt like they were kindred spirits. He felt like they were both shy and genuine. And he just started sending her, like, in his mind, they were tokens of, like, his affection and, like, his delusional mind thinking that she would, like, want to be with him if he just started sending her a bunch of things. He wrote her letters and she actually replied to one of them. And when she replied to it, he took that as his cue to travel from Tuscan, Arizona to Los Angeles to see her. Now, like, in our sane minds, we know that, like, if you write a letter to a celebrity, I mean, not so much anymore, but back in the day, I feel like if they respond, it's just because they're like, thanks so much for being a supporter you know that's basically the gist of it it's not like oh my gosh I want to be with you I love you like come see me like but in his mind that's like what she was telling him if you're lucky you get an autographed picture that somebody else probably signed <laughs> yeah literally <laughs> so yeah once he got that letter that was like it triggered something in his brain to just like get up fly there and take action so he actually went to the studio and he brought flowers and a teddy bear um, but it never made it through security and he eventually went back home so jack egger who was chief of security at the burbank studios he later told the la times i thought he was just lovesick which i think he was 
He was terribly insistent on being let in. Rebecca Schaefer was every other word. I got to see her. I love her. If I could just see her for a minute. So he was like being very insistent. Yes. Yeah. I mean, totally. It ties completely in with that. Like he was just. Junior vibes. Yep. He was just obsessed and like he didn't care how crazy he seemed. He just like wanted to get in there to like meet her and bring her these things. Well, I hear trying to assassinate a president is popular to try to do. I mean, yeah, that definitely catches people's attention. <laughs> However, this was like 86, 87. So he probably heard that it didn't work. Yeah, yeah. He took that. He took notes from that case. <laughs> He's like, okay, not going to do that. So Judy Crown, who was a veteran hairstylist, she worked on My Sister Sam. She described Rebecca as very beautiful, very sweet, a little bit naive. Um, She also recalled telling her when letters and gifts would arrive on set. She would say to her, Rebecca, don't respond. Just don't respond to them. I don't have a good feeling about this. People sometimes are crazy, and I think you should just ignore it. Honestly, great advice. I hope, I wish that, you know, she took it and didn't write Robert at all. But I'm sure I could totally see it from her perspective, you know. It's her first time on, like, a major TV show and she's getting fan mail. She's probably just feeling like, ah, I have fans. This is so exciting. I want them to, like, still love me, so I want to respond to them. You know, she probably didn't expect anything this horrible to come out of it right so robert's opinion of rebecca started to change after he watched her in a love scene in scenes from the class struggle i guess like in his mind when he saw her like with somebody else in the movie which like Obviously, people know like she's acting. It's not actually happening. Happening, but when he saw this, he just felt betrayed by her, and that like set him off. She's cheating, cheating. Yeah, in his mind, he totally thought that, which is just nuts. In my mind, it was like the snooky voice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my gosh, for real. So. This, like, set him off onto his mission, and with his gun and bullets in hand, he boarded a bus to L.A. He's like, nobody's going to cheat on me. (laughs) I'll show her. (laughs) Let alone now, she, like, has, like, no idea who this guy is. That's so crazy to me. So crazy. So, so crazy. (laughs) So Rebecca had no idea that the writer of some of the, you know, sweet letters that she received had snapped. Like, obviously, she didn't know. She was also a very kind and trusting person, according to a lot of people, not to mention she was waiting for that script to come. So, you know, maybe the simple reason as to why she was inclined to open the door that day for a stranger was just to like because she was just excited to get her script and she didn't think that anything bad was going to happen 
Also, uh, they note that her intercom in her apartment wasn't working. So it wasn't like she could be like, oh, who's here? Um, so she just automatically thought to open the door. Well, it's when, probably just second nature, too. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, she's expecting somebody to be there. So it's not like she didn't think anybody was coming over. It was just probably thinking like, oh, the script's here. So when Rebecca first came to the front door of her building, Bardo showed her the letter that she had sent him in an autographed photo. And he told her that he was her biggest fan. She politely told him that she had an interview to get ready for. She, um, she said, please take care. And Bardo later remembered her telling him to like, you know, I hope you have a nice day, like whatever, you know, basically being polite, kind of like trying to get rid of him. And then she even shook his hand. So he left, like, so he was there twice. So after eating at a nearby diner, he was like, nope, I'm going back. So he went back to her place. He claimed that he forgot to give her another letter and a CD that he brought for her. She said, you came to my door again, Robert said in the jailhouse interview, uh, parts of which, like, of his interview were played in court during his trial. He says, it was like I was bothering her again. Hurry up. I don't have much time. So I I think that was kind of uh, another thing that was like setting him off was she was kind of like in his mind brushing him off. He says, I thought it was very a very callous thing to say to a fan. So he was just getting more and more mad, I think. I wonder what CD he bought her. Was it like Michael Bolton's greatest hits when a man loves a woman? Or was it more like boys demand, like I'll make love to you? <laughs> Maybe it was I'm a mixtape. Maybe. Well, he said he, CD and you couldn't burn them yet, I don't think. Oh, so, that's true. I'm, yeah, I'm, so I'm just I don't kind know. of wondering, you know, which which way he was going with it. That's so funny. Yeah, he even then told her. Like, as he got there, he said, I forgot to give you something. And at this point, you know, he's just pissed. He's pissed that she had a love scene in a movie. And that she was brushing him off and kind of being like, I, I have to get ready for an interview. Thank you so much. And that she, like, totally wasn't into, like, the CD and everything. And then after he said that, he shot her with the gun that he had brought from Arizona with him. Um, he was keeping it in a shopping bag. And after he shot her, Rebecca, she was pronounced dead at uh, Cedar sinai Medical Center, which was less than a mile away. Shortly after noon, Tom Noonan, who was a friend of Rebecca's, left a message for her mother. Um, and about 10 minutes later, taking a break from the play that her mom was writing, she called back. So she had no idea what was going on at that point. Her mom says, I still remember how sunny my voice sounded when he picked up the phone. Then he said, and these words are inscribed in my brain, Mrs. Schaefer, I have terrible news. This morning, Rebecca was shot and killed. And 
I'm sure her heart just kind of like dropped from that. He told her, um, they called the hospital, but they wouldn't confirm over the phone anything other than that a woman had been admitted and had died. Could you imagine like being so hearing that so abrasive though over the phone? Oh no, because I mean, like you'd think they'd been like, "Hey, um, there was a incident. We need you to come here." Um, something happened, your daughter was involved. I don't know. I just feel like that's just so cold to say it over the phone, especially like just if she's by herself or all alone or, you know what I mean? Like, right. I don't know at that point if she was living in a different state, but still, I feel like the way they kind of said it, like very short and like, I don't know. Yeah. Like, like you said, there was no push in and what they said and it was just kind of like she just picked up the phone not expecting that at all and then she just got like that horrible news right away i guess if she was out of state they could have been like hi you know um and just kind of slowly like more softly you know kind of deliver it like hey we're just calling you know are you the mother of um she <laughs> i don't know i just feel like it was just so cut dry cold i picture it being a detective with a bald guy and a stupid mustache wearing a khaki and brown suit with an ugly brown tie (laughs) so descriptive (laughs) but i can honestly i can picture that too like just like the worst dude ever that could have called her like they could have had someone else anybody else call her yeah he delivered it in the worst way possible and she says once she called the hospital and they kind of didn't give her any information just that you know a woman had been admitted and died she said at that point i kind of knew um she said and then the detective called again and it was all over um while rebecca's death was obviously a very devastating personal loss for her parents And, like, her friends and all of her loved ones. She had a boyfriend at the time um, who was a director. His name was Brad Silberling. But, like, the circumstances of the killing, it also just, like, jolted the Hollywood community. And then, like, basically just the entire state of California. Because... It kind of, like, shed this new light. Not even new, because obviously it had been happening before. But it really just took it up a notch, like getting people to pay attention to this, just the unhealthy obsessions with famous people that people have and like how so many of them just turn disturbing and it just becomes very common, you know, and like there's examples of like people so obsessed with like Taylor Swift, like Harry Styles, Justin Bieber, all these people. And they have to deal with, like, stalkers themselves and, like, crazy people who admire them. And, like, you know, I feel like a lot of people who are, like, huge Hollywood stars end up getting some type of stalker situation. And the stalkers end up being arrested for trespassing, burglary, any other crimes that kind of fit into that harassment category. So... While her death, it wasn't the only um, 
thing that was going on for the action. It was just until after her murder that stalking in and of itself was even classified as a crime. Because before that, there was nothing done. You know, if you call the police and say that someone's following you or someone's stalking you, like they were just going to be like, sorry, we can't do anything. Um, whereas now, you know, you can get restraining orders, you can get different things put in place to protect you. So in 1990, California actually became the first state to pass an anti-stalking law. Um, because in addition to Rebecca, four women also had been killed in Orange County the previous year. Um, despite having restraining orders in place against men who had been harassing them. And eventually the rest of the country followed suit and they all were about this like anti-stalking law. The Screen Actors Guild also got involved in lobbying the state to strengthen privacy protections and the state subsequently restricted the accessibility of personal information you know, things like home addresses, um, because they got hers from the DMV. Like, how easy is that? So, according to uh, a state assemblyman, the California Department of Motor Vehicles, they received 16 million address inquiries in 1988. So, they kind of followed suit with, like, the anti-stalking law with that and they passed the driver's privacy protection act in 94 which required all of the other states to do the same so just so basically it's not so easy just to find anybody's address silverling told ew in 2017 he says we weren't aware of the ripples going out right after rebecca died he says but it was definitely an earthquake um, even Brad Pitt, who I guess lived down the street from where she was killed, he later told Silbering, as the director said, he said, it's no consolation, but the impact of her loss and the senses of awareness and safety for younger actors was huge. So everybody was basically aware just how much this case was like changing everything in Hollywood and changing like the protection of all of actors and actresses around and gun control even also became a hot topic in the wake of her death um <clears throat> and like the whole crew for my sister sam cast they reunited for a psa about gun violence as well um pam dauber who again she played uh rebecca's sister on the show she said it wasn't hard to get it moving at all um though what is going to be hard is to get the networks to air it. She says gun control is fairly controversial, though we're all saying two people is to prevent handgun violence. Now, how can you argue with that? So basically, she's saying like they weren't, since it was such a controversial topic and still is today, she was saying like they weren't telling people not to have guns. They were basically just like talking about you know, straight up violence with other people with guns. Rebecca's parents also threw themselves into the fight for stricter gun laws, imploring lawmakers to tighten restrictions on who could get their hands on a firearm. You know, a battle that's pretty similar to the one that's still 
going on today. Uh, her mother, she helped launch the lobbying group, uh, or Oregon. How do you say that? Oregonians, people from Oregon <laughs> against gun violence in 1990. Um, and she went to Washington, D.C. to help lobby for the passage of the Brady Handgun Violence Protection Act. Now, her dad, Benson, he says, we face death every morning, which he told the LA Times in October of 91. Sometimes you're overcome with despair. You never cease missing that person. The gun issue lets us focus our anger. Um, and actually, the Brady Bill was eventually enacted in 1993. Um, and I get what he's saying, too, kind of going back to what her dad said. Like, they're probably just so filled with so much grief of sadness and anger that, like, putting their efforts towards this gun control issue that they're really passionate about is, like, a, a good place to put all of that emotion, I feel like, instead of putting it into something negative. Yeah. Um, their main goals didn't sound particularly extreme, they wanted for all gun sales to have built-in waiting periods and to have guns only be sold by licensed dealers. And, like, I, I see what they're saying. In the case of, like, Robert, because he got it from his brother. So that's kind of, like, where the, the tricky part is. You know, if somebody just gives somebody else they know their gun, they can't really – it's hard, harder to prevent that, I guess. But if he told the gun people or whatever that he had mental illness, and so his family probably knew he had mental Did his brother not know he was suffering from mental illness? Like, I shouldn't give my brother this gun? I don't think he knew because, I mean, I don't really know for sure. But it sounded like he didn't know because when he did give him the gun, he was like, oh, yeah, you can have this, but... You know, we're just going to use it when we do target pra practice together. Like, so I don't think he necessarily, and again, I don't know for sure, but I don't think he would have given him the gun if he thought that anything like this would have happened. So he was just open with his confessions of mental illness to strangers, not his family. <laughs> I don't know. Unless, yeah. And if he did tell his brother, then like, that's a huge, that's even more so on his brother. Like, this should be on his brother in a little bit, but if he knew he had issues then yeah that's even more so on him okay just checking <laughs> yeah kind of going back to the day of the crime witnesses they later recalled seeing robert bardo on rebecca street um you know showing passerbys her photo asking if they knew her where she lived and then when he got to her building he asked a cab driver waiting at the curb if it was a house or an apartment complex not much later neighbors heard a shot and screams and then bardo ran off up the street she was lying on the ground wearing nothing but a black bathrobe kenneth newell who lived in the building next door and ran outside when he heard the shot told the LA Times. He says her eyes were open, staring. It looked to me as though she was already dead. 
We can assume she may have known him or maybe she was just a trusting person. LAPD detective Dan Andrews told reporters that day, speculating as to why Rebecca had opened the door. He said, we have no record of her ever having called for assistance or being a victim of anything or being harassed. So they had no idea this stalking situation was going on. But honestly, she didn't even really know either. She just got a letter that she replied to. And then he just kind of showed up at her door. Yeah, she just probably thought this is the beginning of her being famous, you know. Right, exactly. So security at the studio later confirmed that none of the letters sent to Rebecca on the lot sounded menacing or threatening. You know, they said they just thought it sounded like ordinary fan mail that people would get. Um, Now, Paul Bartell, who had just directed her in... Um, the scenes from the class struggle. He says, I can only assume that it was somebody who didn't know her, but was obsessed with her. And he was obviously right with that. He says, I can't imagine that anybody who really knew her would do this. She was so mature and intuitive that she would have made sure this couldn't have happened. The following day, Tuscan police received a report of a man disrupting traffic at a major intersection Bardo, who had been running near a freeway yelling that he killed Rebecca Schaefer, was arrested. And the officers, after finding a photo of Rebecca in his pocket, immediately contacted authorities in Los Angeles. So he was just like out there running by a freeway yelling that he killed her like like he wanted everybody to know. Now, police there had already received a tip from a woman in Tennessee who said that Robert had been obsessed with Rebecca. Um, And Tuscan police faxed Robert's picture over, and the neighbors identified him as the man that they had been asking about Rebecca. So I guess the woman in Tennessee that tipped them off, saying that he was obsessed with her, she turned out to be his sister. Um, He had written to her in Knoxville before leaving again for L.A., and he says in his like letter that he wrote to her, he said, I have an obsession with the unattainable and I have to eliminate something that I cannot attain. So clearly this like sounded off red flags in his sister's mind, like uh, something is not right here. So she tried to let people know, but it sadly was, you know, too late. Um, before he tracked down Rebecca, he had other problems. He once went to Maine looking for Samantha Smith, a young peace activist who made headlines when she corresponded with Soviet leader Yuri Andropov and traveled with her family to Moscow as his guest. After that, Robert was put in foster care back in Arizona, but he ran away and ended up in a psychiatric hospital. In 1985, he was discharged and placed in another foster home, which he also ran away from that one. Um, And he worked for a while as a janitor at a jack-in-the-box. So he definitely, you know, had a rough go of it as a child, um, which, you know, definitely may have played a part in his mental illness issues going on. Um, And the young woman that he was obsessed with, Samantha Smith, She died in a plane crash in 1985 when she was 13, after which Robert 
then turned his attention to pop star Debbie Gibson. <gasps> Not Debbie. She was yeah. my favorite when I was little. Well, he, everybody she was loved one of his youth. <laughs> so clearly he just had like an issue of just like being obsessed with someone. Oh my gosh. So with Debbie Gibson, he went to New York to try to meet her. He didn't end up meeting her. And while he was there, he visited the spot where Ding, ding, ding. Mark David Chapman killed John Lennon in 1980. It always goes back to John and Mark. That's, that's what I'm saying. And though he didn't stop to read it as Chapman did, Bardo, he also had a paperback copy of The Catcher in the Rye on him when he shot Rebecca Schaefer. So that's kind of where all ding, of the... Ding, mother effing ding. Right? That's where it all is connected. Like, what is with this book and people being obsessed with people and killing people? I don't get it. Although it said he didn't even read this one, so he was kind of like a poser. He was just carrying it around trying to be cool. But That's so. what I kind of think. <laughs> like, do you think he did that on purpose? I don't know. Um, maybe because he went to the spot where John Lennon was and Mark sat on the step reading the book after he murdered john um so i mean maybe it sounds a little like uh posed or like you know kind of poetically yeah. set up that's what i was thinking like i don't know i feel like if he didn't read it and then he did go and visit like the place where Chapman killed John, like, I think it was just him trying to, like, like you said, like a poetic statement or something, even though it was nutso, but yeah. Um, and Robert said in his jailhouse interview that there was just something very special about Rebecca and he just could not let go of her. Um, a, a tough young prosecutor named Marcia Clark she caught the case, and early on, she agreed not to seek the death penalty when Bardo waived his right to a jury trial. The absence of a jury didn't lessen, like, the morbid fascination uh, with, that people had with the proceedings at all. It became a trial run for synthesis of justice and celebrity, and it just basically foreshadowed what was to come with the high-profile trials of everything going on, like it kind of, like how it spilled into all these other laws coming out of it, the anti-stalking law and like the personal address records and everything like that. And kind of adding to like the craziness of this trial. Bardo said that he was further inspired by the U2 song Exit off their album Joshua Tree about religious fantasism turning deadly, which itself was inspired by Norman Mailer's The Executioner song about serial killer Gary Gilmore. And there's lyrics such as like, hand in the pocket, finger on the steel, the pistol weighed heavy, his heart he could feel beating beating oh my love and 
I guess that song played in court and it reportedly seemed to like invigorate Robert who he banged his knees like a drum and mouthed the words while they were playing this in court um which is just kind of bizarre because he says that this was like part of his inspiration in killing Rebecca now his attorney Stephen Galindo, he argued that his client was too mentally ill to have planned his crime and was guilty of nothing more than second-degree murder. Rebecca Schaefer is a victim in the true sense of the word, his attorney said in court. But at the same time, he says Robert Bardo is also a victim, a victim of parental neglect and mental health system which failed to provide the treatment that he needed. And the judge agreed that Bardo certainly was not normal, but that he was not insane either. Um, and he agreed with the prosecution. On October 29th, 1991, Robert Bardo was convicted of first-degree murder with the special circumstance of lying in wait. Um, so that December, he was uh, sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And he is currently behind bars at Avenal State Prison in California. And hopefully that's where he will stay forever and ever and ever. Yeah, I'm thinking that's probably what it's going to be. But... You never know, but I think that they definitely made the right decision because even though he was mentally ill and I agree that he had a bad childhood, he had mental illness that wasn't treated, he still planned to do this. Like he plotted it out. It wasn't like it wasn't like second degree murder. Like he didn't just like do it in the moment. Like he plotted this out. There's no exit for him now. <laughs> nope. Man, you have all the good ones. <laughs> all the good ones. <laughs> but yeah, so it's so crazy how this was just another one that was very similar to your two that you just told the last two weeks. Like the obsession of it all, the stalking, the murder, the freaking catcher in the rye book. Like, I don't understand, but, but yeah, something, something with that book is like, has to be like evil. It's crazy. I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Yeah, not at all. But, but yeah, I am curious if there's uh, more of these out there. So if you guys know of any more, definitely let us know. We can do them or just tell us because I would love to know too, because. It's wild that even these three high-profile pro stories, like, all have to do with that book. It's so weird. I will keep uh, my eyes peeled as I work on our story for next week. I'll see what comes up. We just become a um, Catcher in the Rye podcast. Crime oh, podcast. <laughs> Just every week we find a new one connected to it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, also, it was Adrian Shelley 
was the story. Ah, okay, yes. Yeah. So yeah, Shelly was correct. Yeah, and she was in Waitress. Yes. Yeah, I. It's so sad, like how many of those stories are actually are. Like, I'm sure we could do a whole series on that, where it's just like people in Hollywood, whether it's female or male, have been harassed. Murdered. Maybe I'll do that next week. What celebrities have been stalked? Yeah. You'll have a long list, I'm sure. There's got to be so many crazy people doing that out there. Yep. Well, we were going to get into talking about a movie that we did, but I know we're already over an hour. So we are going to sit on it and make you guys wait till next week. The suspense will kill you. <laughs> um, but... And that no, we are going to exit out of the show tonight. Love's on fire tonight. <laughs> and I hope you guys have a wonderful night and we will catch you next week. Yes, guys. We will see you later. Stay and creepy. Bye. Bye. Bye.